Short Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? I'm grand, thanks Ed. I think I have just about recovered from the marvels that Sheffield Dockfest provided, Matt and mm. I. How are you? I'm more or less okay. I have had a bit of a cold over most of this week. I had to take a day off work as a result of it on Thursday. And uh, I used it as an excuse to watch Heat and Malcolm X, which are two movies that I uh, love and that I, I haven't watched in quite a long time and always thought I'd really like to rewatch those movies. But they're both near or over three hours long. And like it's hard to kind of like find the time to, you know, like at the end of a work day to kind of come in and casually throw Heat on. So... Uh, yeah, so yeah, no. so I, I had the I took the opportunity and sat and watched both of those back to back and yeah, those are just two of the two of the best American movies of the nineties by by quite some way. No casual heat, absolute mm, commitment yeah. to the temperature, which is probably quite apt given that you're probably running a temperature at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Just kind of like shivering and watching uh, Pacino and De Niro kind of like trade trade barbs in a diner and just thinking this is great cinema <laughs> <laughs> it's like when fred, this. when fred savage grows up <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he doesn't always have uh, the princess bride at his disposal so that's just the next logical step surely mm. yeah michael michael mann is my peter falk <laughs> i've always said that <laughs> So we'll go on to the news for this week, and it's been a pretty packed week, I think. Mm. Our first story will be the one that uh, has certainly been settling my my Twitter feed ablaze in interesting ways, in the sense that uh, it kind of revealed just how many of the people on my feed watch anime, which uh, I wouldn't have imagined was quite as high as it is. Like, I always feel like I have a good grasp. It's like, these people like it, these people dabble, these people have no interest, whereas... Uh, the arrival of Neon Genesis Evangelion on Netflix has kind of really brought a, a lot of weebs out, out of the woodwork, and uh, which has been quite interesting. Yes, the the, the show, which uh, is an anime from the 90s created by Hideaki Anno, is kind of like a legendary anime, one of the most influential and popular of the last kind of 20 years or so, has largely been unavailable to watch legally for most of this century mm. uh, it was available mm. on dvd in like the ninth the, the late 90s early 2000s but that's been long out of print the only way to watch it was uh illegally through uh torrents and things like that so it's kind of been a very big deal that it's now available to everyone in you know kind of like def- decent high definition anyone who has netflix rather and that in and of itself kind of like has presaged a lot of very interesting writing about the show kind of like putting it in a new context i've read a lot of really in-depth and thoughtful and great essays about it over the last couple of weeks but it's also brought to light some of the ways in which the show has changed as a result of being on netflix the key ones being things like music rights the show every episode ends with a cover of fly me to the moon on the original release and that is not present in the american version that airs now on netflix although it is pleasant present in the japanese netflix version because they just don't have global rights to that song which a lot of people have kind of like taken issue with as removing this thing that is quite an iconic part of the series but on a more 
weird and for a lot of people very upsetting level one of the the kind of like relationships in the show between two characters which was often very it was it was interpreted as being a queer relationship or at least having a very strong homoerotic subtext has been considerably neutered there was a scene where one character in the original subtitles said i love you and then the other one says i can't believe they said they love me and now it says i like you and then the reply is i can't believe they said i was worthy of their grace Ugh. which is you know has, has got a lot of pushback a lot but you know like some people um have said you know like well maybe this is like you know the, the the original wording you know like the translation could be read either way but uh i think anno oversaw the dub and the subtitling of the original so like what was there was very much his intention and and a lot of people have kind of taken this to be netflix scrubbing a possible queer reading from the show uh in a way that is like very i think very distasteful considering what the the show means to uh, a lot of gay fans of anime and, and queer people in general absolutely and it does seem that we are hitting up against this barrier that Netflix has again and again, and we have discussed this before, in terms of how in its marketing can be generally very virtue signalling, because in terms mm. of what Netflix actually cancels or what its algorithm promotes, there is a huge mm. void between <laughs> what they purport to be doing and what they're actually doing. And yeah. I haven't watched Tales of the City yet, which is the next kind of major LGBTQ piece from mm. Netflix. I believe it's a Netflix original. Yeah. But for me, I think, even though I'm not familiar with Evangelion at all, although I'm more than aware of the really huge fan base and support for it, and the anime that I grew up with in my sort of early teens is very, very different um, in terms of what I was seeking out. It just feels so futile because, like you say, this is not a new, it's not a new project. It's not a new no. show. So who exactly does Netflix think that they are, quote unquote, protecting? Mm. Because you could probably download things and find an SRT files somewhere where it's a more accurate translation like why why is netflix doing this mm. because it's already been done it's already been shown and various like intertitles i think have been missed out as well which just seems immensely disrespectful mm. to yeah. people who've actually made this show and netflix in terms of their subtitling given my personal background as a subtitler purely for access so for like hard of hearing um yeah rather than uh, translation subtitles are essential and actually now have a much further reaching use beyond who you would immediately expect which are people who are hard of hearing or deaf it's mm -hmm. actually you know the amount of stuff that we consume online where we don't have audio or we need subtitles because maybe it's not appropriate to use audio at this time or um, if you even if you are hearing or you know I've, I've had stories of friends of mine who are parents and they're like actually we still get to watch a show if we just turn the volume off because we won't wake the baby but we'll still have subtitles you know there's so much more utility to them than uh than at like prima facie you know yeah but that's it it just seems a weirdly prudish and almost more of an effort to go to rather than just mm. 
use what's already there somewhere on the internet, you know? Yeah, it seems to me like the two explanations for, for it are not good and they're not good in different ways. One of which is like they're actually trying to, you know, suppress uh, queer reading because I guess they feel like anime fans are, you know, don't like that. And and like to be fair, there's always a lot of pushback whenever people try to read alternate readings into it or, you know, just to, to read a fairly straightforward reading into a into a work and then people be like, "I don't want you talking about politics in my anime," which really happened if uh, anyone checks the piece that ran on, I think either Polygon or The Verge this week, talking about the uh, not very subtle fascist overtones of Attack on Titan, mm. which is a real fascinating piece uh, that uh, really got a lot of people kind of like writing angry emails being like why are you taking basically saying why are you taking this so seriously it's like because you made an anime which basically is about jews taking over the world and being giants who kill people yes. you know it's like like it's not exactly subtle that there's a lot of horrible things happening in this anime yeah. um so it's like uh, so you know maybe netflix thinking that there's a conservative bent to to anime fans is you know not entirely wrong but so, so that's one reading. The other one is just like they got the rights to this like hugely important kind of touchstone of a lot of modern anime culture. And then they really like cheaped out on things <laughs> like in terms mm. of music rights, in terms of maybe not buying the rights to the original translation instead of going for a cheaper option of just getting someone else to do it and then not really caring that much that subtleties were missed in the translation and that just something like you say the intertitles just don't have anything there mm. and knife is great i think in terms of the broader uh connotations for like you know the digital future the digital age that we all in i think it does point to like a real problem when it comes to preservation of works that you know there is a, a possibility when you have digital licensing rights for things like that, that you will have a company like Netflix, who in some cases show themselves to be very uh, reverent when it comes to things they air, you know, if you look at what they did with The Other Side of the Wind and things like that. But in other cases, they'll point at a thing and just think, okay, this bolsters our reputation with this segment of our audience that we want to grow, which would be kind of anime fans. Like, what's the cheapest way that we can get the most impact? And, like, that seems to be not the best attitude to take. Our next story is the story that Brian Singer has been removed from the proposed remake of Red Sonja as a writer-director and replaced with Jill Soloway, who is probably best known for creating Transparent and I Love Dick, both of which I believe are Amazon uh, properties. They are, yeah. And this is an interesting development because obviously Brian Singer is probably a criminal, allegedly a criminal uh has been alleged to have done some truly terrible things over uh, over many many years uh something that cropped up a lot during the last couple of months or or the the last months of last year when bohemian rhapsody was doing very very well and in uh, com- uh commercially and when it came to awards and it, it was treated as a movie that directed itself <laughs> because he was not involved in the press no one thanked him at the Oscars, which is uh, perfectly uh, reasonable considering that he basically didn't direct the movie. Uh, Dexter Fletcher mostly completed it. But, you know, he has was still someone who, as far as anyone was concerned, was still set to direct this remake of Red Sonja, an action movie from the 80s that had been in development hell for years and years and years. 
and replacing him with Jill Soloway, who is non is she non are they non non binary? They're non binary, I believe. Yeah. Soloway, who is uh, non binary and has this history of making works that is is very much dealing in queer themes and exploring notions of gender and, and identity. Uh, you know that seems like a very hard tack away, but at the same time, Soloway is a fairly controversial figure within the LGBT community because of the way that they did not respond to the allegations against Jeffrey Tambor on Transparent and what was often seen as their kind of using trans stories in a way that seemed to a lot of people within that community as exploitative. So it it kind of feels like replacing one deeply problematic person with another problematic person, although someone who's literal crimes or on a, a greater scale but uh, it, it's kind of an a, an interesting story to have uh, occurred and a real at the very least kind of a hopeful sign that maybe brian singer's career is uh is is over like you would hope mm. i think like for me i struggle with, with with putting jill soloway in the role i think particularly because it feels like people who are not engage with the queer community and have essentially done a very quick google search to find Mm. a possible replacement without really doing genuine research and i think so much of genuine research is listening yes and perceiving a community and uh jill soloway released a book not that long ago which had some absolutely uh blistering hatchet jobs Mm. um done of it which is like in, in terms of she's still not doing the work that she needs to come to in terms of awareness of her privilege right which is a real shame because um sorry i'm i'm do you want to say they um yeah i'm doing that thing where i'm slipping between pronouns and and keep this in because this is important like the first time i became aware of jill soloway was when they were still identifying as a um a cis woman and i absolutely loved their writing particularly uh, the episodes of six feet under that they wrote Mm. Um, which often had a real collaborative community women sort of feel to them. Mm-hmm. But now I think as much as I I personally really enjoyed I Love Dick and I felt that it was a mm. really faithful but also innovative adaptation of uh, Chris Krause's book mm-hmm. with a really wide, like opening up the narrative to a wide range of characters in this community. I haven't watched Transparent for a while. I think just because of the Jeffrey Tambor fallout, it felt very hard to still be on board and a witness to it. And I think it is that situation where it's like, well, and and it's a very cold, logical, mathematical approach to where, oh, okay, what do we have too much of, i.e. singer? How do we Mm -hmm. mitigate that? In terms of this balance check book that doesn't actually exist in terms of artists and creative people, you can't you can't treat people in the same way that you do <laughs> numbers. It's just it's just nuts. But there is this idea that like oh somehow there is a, um, a a negative to positive scale, and by bringing Jill Soloway on, we will mitigate Singer being attached to it, and and that's just not it at all. I think purely from a directorial credentials point of view Soloway is not the choice to go for they have never really Mm. directed like 
action. Um, it's not to say that someone shouldn't get the opportunity to do that, but this would still be quite a big film. Yeah. And when you have like such a litany of brilliant um, directors who've who've dealt with like action or like heavily fantasy, like immediately I just thought of like Catherine Bigelow, um, mm. Catherine Hardwick, Deborah Grant. You know, there is there is a long long list. You know, my absolute fave, Karen Kasama. Like, mm-hmm. why, why, why is that not? It, it just felt very calculating to me. Yeah. In a way that wasn't actually remorseful. It was just firefighting and covering your ass. So I'm not, I'm not on board with this. I don't feel good about it at all. Mm, and as I said to you and Matt in our kind of like uh, WhatsApp conversation as we were preparing for this week's episode, Red Sonia is like a real weird product in that it's a movie from the 80s that wasn't that successful like maybe it did well on home video it seems like something that probably people picked up on vhs and, and watched after but but in theaters they didn't really do a huge amount and it always seemed very weird that people would want to go back to it I mean, in some some ways it's kind of like the perfect thing for a remake you know a thing that wasn't that successful initially you know there's not there's not that same level of difficulty in trying to appease fans or whatever like you can be like okay this is the thing people vaguely remember we we can do our own thing with it mm. but it's the the problem is that like no one really wants a red Sonja remake like yeah. there's no kind of like blistering demand for it from people out in the world that you know it's not this thing that uh, there's a huge commercial need for you know kind of story fancy stories and kind of like with kind of like Conan the Barbarian kind of feel to it, you know, like they're demonstrably so because we had a Conan movie from a few years ago that failed, you know, completely, and the Rock's Hercules movie also failed. Like things in that kind of high fantasy realm that aren't Game of Thrones don't do that well uh, currently. Yeah. So it always seemed weird that anyone would want to try and remake it. It was especially strange that, it, and the fact that it's founded for so long in development hell is kind of a testament to that. So yeah. for me, what I wonder with this news is that maybe the company are doing it as a face-saving thing, you know, it'll get them a week of good press of saying, hey, we're not working with this guy who's been incredibly accused of multiple accounts of sexual assault. Let's bring on someone who is from a marginalised community, someone who, uh, you know, like, it has, has, has developed something of a name for themselves through their other work. That will generate a lot of headlines, but the movie's still probably not going to get made, but at the very least, you know, we'll get a good news cycle out of it and it turns the conversation away from, hey, why are you still thinking about making a movie with this guy? Yeah. So it'll be, it, it will be interesting if that ever happens. I, I, I am definitely of the opinion that it's a weird choice, but one that seems to only really make sense within the most kind of cynical framework. And the most cynical would be, of them just hiring Soloway and then being like, yeah, I'm still movie's not going to get made. Yeah. In uh, bet in nicer nicer news, uh, in terms of certainly in terms of this show and some of the things that we've been talking about recently, the Netflix sketch show I think you should leave has been renewed for a second season. We recommended it I think a few weeks ago. It's a sketch show from Tim Robinson who previously worked for Saturday Night Live. It's one of the funniest things I've seen in ages. It's just a great collection of hilarious sketches which have been memed into oblivion particularly the good car ideas sketch i feel has been you has really filtered out into them into uh, whatever approaches the mainstream as far as twitter is concerned because everyone seems to use some variation on it these days and 
uh, there could be no more better compliment than that for I think kind of a weird comedy show that no one really seemed to have great expectations for or at least didn't really seem to know what to make of initially for it to have really found an audience and to have found support at least for another season from Netflix and I'm, I'm very excited to see more of it. Fuck you Harley Jarvis. Yeah, uh, that's why I want it to be. It's just like six episodes of people screaming at Harley, baby Harley Jarvis. Just, just every single iteration of baby of the year. It's, it's <laughs> such a like. I think you should leave with such a breath of fresh air because it doesn't quite feel like anything else. Even though you can like sort of uh, glean influences, like there's a lot of Tim and Eric in it. I think, but mm. even though like I think Tim Robinson has maybe like in himself like three specific characters they're all deployed really well and honed incredibly well and deployed in each situation really really well and Mm. the thing i enjoy so much about it is that with every sketch it kind of takes you to where you think it's going to go very quickly and then manages to devolve strangely plausibly into more and more surreal um situations and the cast is just fantastic i think um patty henderson in particular is given just like the role of a lifetime in terms of uh, losing her shit over whether Santa's going to come or not after this uh, office print has been delivered. And it already feels like it's embedded itself quite quickly into particularly me and, me and my pals, like mm. the lexicon. It's really exciting to have something that's just so quotable and that yes. isn't pure catharsis. And there's nothing wrong with that, but to have something that is genuinely off the wall, consistently funny, and that yeah towards the end even i as a fan might say a little bit repetitive but Mm -hmm. it's it's a a slightly more repetitive episode of i think you should leave is astoundingly better than a lot of the stuff that's out there so i'm very excited to see what they do with this next series and i'm just overjoyed for more content that's shorter form and doesn't overstay its Mm -hmm. welcome and is more hits than misses i think it there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff that's going to come in its wake as well, so I'm excited. And our final bit of news, which will take us into our main topic, is the news that Anthony Carrigan, better known as Noho Hank from Barry, is going to be playing a villain in the new Bill and Ted movie, which has picked up steam uh, over the last couple of weeks with announcements of the the casting of the two daughters of bill and ted uh, and kind of a few more sketchy details about the plot which is still basically the same as the version that's been floated for ages i believe it's called bill and ted face the music and it's all about them being kind of middle-aged and thinking well we haven't really changed history yet and then someone coming along and basically telling them hey you guys need to actually form wild stallions or you guys need to really kind of like get on this wild stallions things to save the future and everything and I'm not entirely sure how that's going to play out. Uh, I, I hope it's good because I do really enjoy both of the first Bill and Ted movies. And it's obviously, you know, a very good time to be Keanu Reeves at the moment. He is showing up everywhere, whether it's in Toy Story, whether it's uh, kind of headlining his own kind of wildly successful franchise, whether it's showing up on a stage at, e, uh, at E3 and pointing up at a screen. You know, he is having a, a whale of a time now and there really is no better time for him to throw his weight behind getting a Bill and Ted sequel made. Uh, but uh, I, I'm very pleased with the casting of Anthony Carrigan because he is he is a real breakout on Barry. And I am really excited to see him 
get exposure to something to a, a bigger wider audience through kind of a big goofy long delayed sequel mm-hmm. i wonder possibly whoever he could be playing i'm excited for this as well um i think anthony carrigan is brilliant i've enjoyed him so so thoroughly and barry as we will go on to talk about mm. and it's just nice to see that even though bill and ted 3 has pretty much the whole gang back together Mm-hmm. that they're still i feel i feel hopeful that they're bringing in new blood as it were yes enrich what they've already got so yeah no i'm excited so uh, as i said anthony carrigan plays the character of noho hank on barry and barry the hbo tv series is the subject of this week's episode uh, which is a, a show that you and i both like a great deal i think matt's also uh watched it uh we yes. wanted to kind of do an episode of all three of us t- 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 talking about it but uh, ended up uh, being uh, 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 we ended up not being able to do that, which is which is a shame. But we'll we'll soldier on because I think Barry is a really fantastic television program. It uh, stars Bill Hader, who also co-created it with Alec Berg, who is a kind of a veteran comedy writer who I think uh, is is arguably most famous for being a writer on Seinfeld and being immortalized in one line of dialogue where Jerry Seinfeld just says. Alec Berg has got a John Houseman quality to it, which is like such a, a weird thing to be famous for. Mm. But, uh, you know, so they're, they're a couple of comedy lifers who have kind of come together on this show where Hader plays a hitman who works uh, out of uh, Cleveland, I believe, with his handler, played by Stephen Root. He goes to L.A. to carry out a hit and the guy he's after works... Uh, it is part of a, an acting class and Barry goes to the acting class to kind of like spy on him. Ends up being kind of enthralled by the experience of watching people act and the people around him in this kind of avenue of creativity and tries over the course of the show's first two seasons, which we will be discussing in some depth. So if you haven't seen Barry, uh, there will be spoilers kind of tries to move away from this life of tremendous violence that he has, you know, kind of like constructed around himself and trying to see if he can do something other than murder people horribly, which is kind of the thing that he has really just got a tremendous knack for, like real, real good at it. And that tension is kind of the thing that really drives the show particularly during the first season and particularly the second season which pretty much all stems from a particular act of violence he does at the end of the first and uh, i you know went in being very excited for it because i really liked bill hader's work on snl i liked the premise it had this kind of like gross point blank get shorty kind of quality to it which you know both movies that i i really like but i've just really been impressed by how nuanced the show is how how both funny and dark it is you know mm. there's a real kind of tension there between how deep it goes into the psyche of barry and also the grief of uh the people around him because he ends up having to kill people who mean a great deal to people who mean a great deal to him and at the same time still being like a really uproariously funny show uh, yeah, it's just like probably the HBO show that I have most been impressed by in the last couple of years. For sure. I think the thing about Barry is that I can't remember exactly how I came to it, but hearing about the premise, hmm. I wasn't alight by it. But knowing No, that it kind of feels like well-trodden territory. Doesn't it? Hmm. But I think it was genuinely Bill Hader's involvement and like 
not only is he starring in it, he's co-created it, he's written a fair bit of it, directed a couple. I was like, mm, okay. And I've just been blown away by it. And I think at its core, it manages to combine very disparate elements in terms of this kind of thriller, a dark comedy, mm. a commentary on acting and Hollywood and the industry by um, and being very even in that by essentially having this core dramatic question of how can someone change which is yes truly universal <laughs> i think and hader i think has just really developed as a dramatic actor which a lot of snl people have done including Kristen wig who is one of his kind of core snl alumni and it's interesting to see someone who and and same with Steve Carell like there's there's been a pattern overall but in terms of his the comic sensibilities of being able to at at one and the same time completely rip the piss out of actors and yet Mm. also appreciate the insight and the value that acting can provide like through art mm. is really special he's just so immensely talented like i remember watching train wreck years ago and thinking like oh wow he's like a really credible lead or like co-lead mm. and then to think like oh he's had this in his head for a long time and now he's finally able to make it is pretty special um i think it looks amazing as well like hero Mirai yes. um is a director over quite a few episodes and there's that very similar I think actually Barry is very similar in tone to Atlanta, which Hero Mirai also mm. directed, um, yeah. in that it is very slick, but also dark. It has these comic elements. It has these dramatic elements. It has these social commentary elements. And yet it doesn't feel wildly discordant. And I think that's what impresses me about it so much. Mm, I think the the key difference probably is that it has slightly stronger senses of, of reality and fiction to it in the sense that mm. you know atlanta has that kind of thing where you're not really sure how much of anything is happening at any one moment how much of it is one coherent fiction and how much of it is just kind of an an interpretation of what is happening to these particular characters in a variety of different settings whereas like barry has a very strict kind of divide between okay this is stuff that's actually happening now and then there's a every so often you know there'll be a, a, a fantasy sequence or a dream sequence that uh, I, I think the show does really, really well. Like there's one in the second season where Barry imagines himself returning from war because he's a, he's a veteran of uh, Afghanistan and he just has, this, there's just this sequence of him walking with all of these other, uh, you know, soldiers who are returning and they're on like assault flat or something, you know, like mm. this place in the middle of nowhere and all these people are being greeted by their loved ones, and then he just sees Stephen Root, who looks for all the world like like Satan, <laughs> like mm. he's wearing, you know, kind of like a black suit. He's got this real devilish smile to him, and it really does underline their relationship. The sense that you know there is this, there's a there's a lovingness between the two of them, but also something like deeply toxic and abusive in the fact that Stephen Root really does abuse kind of the trust that Barry has in him as uh, certainly at the beginning of the series as the only person that kind of knows who he is 
essentially like what he does what he's been through and what he continues to do and i think that's interesting in terms of the because i the definition between that kind of fantasy space and reality space because yeah that that particular scene in barry is really beautiful um mm. in this kind of elysian fields kind of way and i think yeah. at atlanta i definitely got in very quickly in the first series got into that um rhythm of oh i don't actually know what i'm about to expect with the next episode yes. because it was it felt more um anthologized whereas mm. barry definitely has like no each episode has various different elements to it but they will all sort of feel the same although that did change a little bit in the second season i have to say but i think like just coming back to the first season i think it's a really it covers a lot of ground very quickly in a good way like the pace mm. is very even and any time that you come to a point where it's like you know he's at any point i started wondering oh what are the police doing there was immediately a scene with the police <laughs> anytime i was mm. wondering like oh how's his sort of like relationship going we'd come back to that so it has this really strong internal sense of itself which i find very yes. impressive it's even root as well from like office space oh my god like <laughs> managing to just like dish out all of these various different um mildly pathetic uh socially awkward on the fringes sort of characters henry winkler's wonderful mm, um yes and um so in in prep for this um having absolutely rinsed through both series of barry there is a fantastic talks with google of all things uh interview with bill hader which we're going to provide the link for in the show notes um where bill hader talks really interestingly about particularly when it comes to henry winkler's character i'm gonna pronounce this wrong kustano yeah uh, yeah yeah oh, okay got it way kustano as hader's talking about him is like yeah he's flawed but he is actually good at what he does and that's yes. the thing that's compelling it's much more compelling to write a character who has their flaws but is actually very good at what they do so there's a lot of function if not a lot of form and I think that is what the acting class in Barry provides us over and over again. People who are neurotic and reaching or sometimes pathetic, but at some points can actually just knock it out of the park. Mm. And that just brings more conflict and tension because it emphasises the absolute grayscale of the morality <laughs> of, of what Barry is uh, dealing with as the character and the show in terms of what do people deserve? What do you get? What what can you put your energy into? And I think it's absolutely amazing that Bill Hader is actually able to act conceivably badly as mm, Barry. Like yeah. when, when Barry acts, he acts badly. <laughs> yes. For the majority of season one, at least. And when he has his breakthroughs, which often come after moments of incredible trauma like he really knows how to turn it on yeah. and to like really kind of get to a place where you think okay this is this is believably good acting out kind of just in the sense of okay i'm watching a t tv show and this person is giving a good performance but it's also like on an, a level kind of like you know kind of peeling back the onions you know it's a good performance within the context of the show itself and it's a noticeably better performance than what he usually does and you can see like the way in which all these other people are reacting to his like rawness which is not really a performance it's him kind of 
trying to come to terms with the fact that, oh, I just, like, murdered someone I was really good friends with because they possibly threatened kind of the stability and the equilibrium I found for myself, you know? Like, there is... any With anything where you're making something about people who act, you know, there's always going to be multiple levels to every performance, but I, I really am impressed with how well Hader and everyone in the cast, but particularly him, because he's always having to conceal so much of himself and reveal so much of himself at the same time. Yeah. That he 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 really does kind of pull off a pretty amazing trick every time he gets on stage and has to, to access out. And, you know, the other thing that's really good about the show is that it can go from, you know, him going on stage performing a very kind of minimal bit of dialogue from Macbeth really kind of wring all this uh, sadness and emotion out of it, really get something great from Sally, his scene partner and also uh, romantic partner in the show. And then immediately Kuzno will come up to him and be like, that was amazing. Whatever you did, did to get to that point, that's your, <laughs> that's your technique going forward. Yeah. Uh, you know, like a really, really funny gag you know that really plays on the uh, expectations of the audience of thinking oh no <laughs> there's going to yeah. be so many body bags as a result of this uh, and i i think that is uh, tremendously impressive that it can go from those two extremes because that because that scene with chris in the car in season one it's like soprano's level of tense yes. of 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 barry saying to him like why did you why did you say that you know why did you say that you know that possibly threaten me <laughs> because he's like you know you saying that means i have no options now you've backed yeah. me into this terrible corner and you feel for barry having no options like i don't think you mm. ever lose your sort of accessibility sympathy empathy whatever you want to call it with him i think because barry is just so willing and wanting to change and yes. what if the the one thing that you are good at is the worst thing in the world but also, off the back of that, what if that actually ends up being your one key to possibly changing? Like, there's this mm. fantastic paradox that's always going on throughout it. And I think it really comes to the fore in the second series, where almost by no work of his own consciously, he seems to be doing quite well in terms of getting auditions, which absolutely yeah. sets off Sarah Goldberg, who's absolutely magnificent in this all the way mm. through um you know and and her incredible monologue in season two where she's trying to help him prepare for an audition but she can't and and she's within her rights like this incredible monologue where she veers between sounding incredibly egotistical but also incredibly fair in terms of protecting her own dreams mm. and just being incredibly vulnerable and honest with him and not nagging or manipulative, but just genuinely like, this will drive me crazy if you're actually getting ahead <laughs> of me um, in terms of the different journeys we're on. Yeah, there's so many beautiful character pieces because everyone is their own character and feels very plausibly thrown together, even though you've got various different warring, organised crime factions, an acting class, agents. Like, no one feels shallow even though mm. they, even though sometimes their motivations are shallow i think that's what's really impressive i think that's something that really comes into the fore in the second season mm. with a, a lot of the characters who 
in the first season maybe felt caricature-like or at the very least were like they they only seem to operate in a single mode like Cousineau is a good example like Henry Winkler playing that character he's kind of ridiculous he's like you know this kind of acting teacher who's kind kind of sleazy like you can tell that he's kind of really milking people for the money but at the same time he like as 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 Hader says in that google thing like he is very good so, you know he gets good performances out of people but that also doesn't mean that he's not on some level kind of kind of running a bit of a con job on them in the sense that you know he's not a guaranteed success in terms of getting people work but he is very good at getting them to do good performances in the second season he is a man just bereft yeah. because this woman that he was, you know, kind of really, really in love with and whose relationship, you know, was kind of at times in the first season treated kind of very lightheartedly. Like it was never like treated as a complete joke, but it was treated treated as very uh, there were there were like lots of jokes around it in the sense of him talking about being like 43 or whatever. Mm. Um, it's just in kind of like, you know, tossed off dialogue and his the kind of like romanticism that he practices in terms of like, you know, just being kind of real kind of like lovesick puppy love kind of stuff was, you know, it's, it's very funny just coming from Henry Winkler, you know, a guy who is yeah. uh, a venerable character actor. Um, but in the second season, you know, that, that, that relationship has ended in the most horrible way uh, because, because she was, she was murdered and he doesn't really know what to do. He gets to play that darkness and that grief and, the depression that comes from it with total sincerity and he still gets to be funny and he still kind of like has these moments particularly you know when it, when he's talking to Barry about performances and things like that to be that same character that he was in the first season but there's this other layer that Winkler gets to play with and similarly like Noho Hank who is still like a very funny character you know this guy this gangster who is just kind of completely ill-suited for the job that he has found himself in, which is being this kind of key lieutenant at the head of a gang uh, who really just kind of wants everyone to get along and is like, as he says, a bit of a gearhead. I love gag, you know? <laughs> like, he's like a very kind of like someone who's maybe read a few too many New Age books and hasn't really kind of like figured out that, oh yeah, people still need to die. Mm. Uh, like, he, he in the, the second season, because he's trying to forge this alliance with two other gangs and the way in which the kind of jealousy and rivalry in there kind of plays out. You do get to see a lot more psychological depth to him in, in how those relationships play out, how he, like like Barry, kind of is his own worst enemy in that he just completely keeps fucking up everything <laughs> all the time, kind of uh, in pursuit of his own ambitions and those ambitions being actually kind of petty in terms of the milieu in which he's working with which is literally like he feels as if his friend his new friendship is being threatened by a third person showing up and requiring that that third person be murdered by barry and i i really like how the show really is deepening those characters but we're still kind of not losing sight of them like it's not becoming all the grim and super serious as a result no not at all it manages to again and this is the thing be incredibly even that i keep going back to and i think because those characters are so at least the writers so well known and inhabited and they understand them you can put them in very strange situations and they will still mm. ground the scene for example like in season two there is just that episode 
yes. <laughs> which is the closest Barry sort of got to a bottle episode, but but mm-hmm. also but also it's not because it is more thematic, atmospheric, a real spanner in the works, and we we don't really return to it. But yeah, Barry is sent to um, kill this certain. Uh, hit who is a martial arts expert and barry thinks he's gotten away with it but then the guy's daughter quite young daughter turns up and it turns out the daughter is just as capable of mm-hmm. as her father and barry and i think the, f- the first half is really it- it's the first episode of barry where there is so little dialogue and it is mainly just action mm. which i always switch off I do. I can't yeah. help but just kind of like roll my eyes back in my head. But it managed to bring it back because it does just bring this very tentative oh, what if we are talking about a supernatural world? What if we are talking about <laughs> something that's quite hallucinatory in terms of where Barry and his handler are at? Because it is quite mm. self-contained in that respect. And it just felt gloriously gothic. Like after having like this very rich world of characters and cause and effect, it just kind of bursts into this realm of mere fantasy. Hmm. And I think that was probably a really brave thing to do because it's not necessary, but it's really bold. And I think it very softly brings in something that could be planted on it's something planted that could come back later down the mm. line. And I really enjoyed it because it just wasn't what I expected. But that's that's essentially the Teddy Perkins episode yes. to, to Barry as, as Teddy Perkins was to Atlanta. And I just think like it just manages to be so heartbreaking and where we've left the second season now in terms of, you know, it's so well structured in terms of, your points of no return and then you come to these absolute kind of crunch points and how it doesn't feel too deus ex machina for other stuff to kind of sweep in mm. um it just it just very plausibly unfolds it's very tight in terms of what's been set up and what pays off for me that episode most reminded me of again to go back to the sopranos to the episode pine barrens mm. where uh, christopher and paulie are tasked oh. with going to kill a, uh, I believe a Russian um, yes, yeah. gang member. They take him out to the Pine Barrens, and things just go completely wildly wrong, <laughs> and they end up kind of like wandering around in this like frozen forest for ages and ages. And it's an episode that doesn't have a huge amount of bearing on the kind of the ongoing plot lines of the the third season of The Sopranos, but it's often held up as like one of the, the, the a fan favorite because it's just these two characters kind of sniping at each other for the entirety and exploring their kind of relationship as a result and that's definitely how this feels to me obviously in terms of the broader story of season two it plays off of the punchline of the previous episode or the, or the cliffhanger of the previous episode where this detective who has been tracking barry for the entirety of the first half of the season and who you think is trying to get revenge because Barry killed his partner, who was also uh, Cousineau's 
uh, uh, girlfriend, you think, oh, he's going to try and catch him and get revenge on him. And instead, what he says is, I need you to kill this guy because he's sleeping with my wife. Which uh, gave the episode, I think the episode is just called What? <laughs> Which I think is yeah. great. Because that's literally, like, because that's just what Barry says at the very end of it when he can't believe that that's what this guy is asking of him. And so, obviously, it plays off of that. And at the end of the episode, that cop shows up and he is planning to kill both Barry and Ronnie because uh, obviously you know he's a cop with a gun he can say that these these guys were a threat to him and get away with it so there's kind of like connections at the beginning and end to it that connect it to like a longer story but for the most part it is about the relationship between Bill Hader and Stephen Root at that point you know that this relationship that has fractured considerably because Barry doesn't want to kill people anymore mm. and it really is like wonderful in its escalation uh, not just in the sense of like them thinking is there something supernatural going on with this kid because it seems it seems like this kid is not of this earth but also mm. the ways in which their situation just deteriorates so much like barry getting stabbed Stephen rue getting his hands covered in super glue and stuck to the wheel of the car <laughs> it just being like a real kind of escalating series of of comic disasters occurring to them over it and bringing to the surface, you know, things about their relationship to each other, which uh, I think can only really happen in kind of an extreme situation like that. And I think that the show handles that beautifully. It's one of those things where it feels kind of like this tangential thing that's happening off to the side and doesn't really have anything to do with anything. But in the subsequent episodes, you think, oh, you know, what that episode was doing was really revealing things about these characters that are going to pay like you say are going to pay off in the immediate future but also you know if you're looking one two seasons down the line assuming Stephen survives that long because <laughs> at the end of the se- at the end of the season uh, it doesn't seem like uh, he and Barry are going to be reconciling anytime soon well we'll see there are plenty of twists and turns in two so I'm really looking forward to three mm. yeah me too uh you also uh, talked mentioned a little bit there about the show's um commentary social commentary which i think becomes more pronounced in season two uh i think the show handles that stuff really well i think there is totally a version of those stories that could be really corny and heavy-handed and totally overshoots its uh, uh overextends itself in terms of like you know barry becomes a just complete global megastar but he's also still killing people and maybe that's like how it goes but in the end but like uh, i'm glad they haven't kind of like gone that far it's like okay he's a tall good-looking midwestern guy of course he's probably going to do pretty well getting auditions because those are the sort of people that hollywood tends to gravitate to and they literally like the, the main criteria they seem to judge on him is that he's the right height for this role in a comedy movie yeah um which is really which is really really great um and it it does kind of like play on that nobody knows anything thing where he's in his audition with uh jay roach playing himself and alison jones playing herself which is a wonderful little nod to uh probably the most influential person in the history of american comedy at least over the last like 20 years (laughs) because she she casts everything it's it's really funny where he's distracted because you know there's all these other things on he basically doesn't really do the audition and jay roach's response is like he did not give a fuck he's just like really impressed by it and it really does kind of do those sort of things well in a way that maybe 
other shows would or movies or whatever that have handled the same topic can sometimes just really kind of lather it on a little too thickly yeah absolutely no i think i think it the word that keeps coming to my mind when watching barry is just deftly mm. everything is really deftly handled and woven together and the stakes are very real there is actual blood there is actual death there are fantastically high moments of comedy mm-hmm. errors ego and it's just everyone trying to do the thing that they want to do and all the different clashes of that and i think it's just remarkable that in two series it's managed to be quite so funny and thrilling and profound mm, absolutely so we end this week's episode as we end all our episodes with shot reverse shot recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week i'm a bit behind with this so it's not like i'm presenting anything new um mm. but i just finished tuca and bertie yesterday mm. it's absolutely glorious uh, Lisa Hannah Waltz, um, who is sort of the main sort of like art director of Bojack Horseman, mm-hmm. incredible eye for detail, and her vision is so specific. And Tuka and Bertie, I'll be honest, the first couple of episodes I didn't really get it. I found it a little bit, a little bit twee, a little bit kind of zany. Um, but the way that it absolutely develops and darkens and deepens and embraces its characters, and even though it's set amongst a world of where every every inhabitant is an anthropomorphic bird, I don't think I've seen anything that's quite managed to sort of represent the modern millennial female experience quite <laughs> quite as aptly or with compassion and humour. And there's some really beautiful visual flourishes. So I just I can't recommend Two Converti enough really. Plus the theme tune has just been stuck in my head for days. <laughs> And it is very welcome. It's not It's not an intruder in the slightest. Cool. I am going to recommend uh, a video game, an indie game called Train Valley 2, Ooh. which is a lovely little puzzle game that, for me, embodies the two things I want in a game, which is a very placid presentation, something where you look at it, oh, this is very nice and calming, but then mechanics that make it incredibly stressful. And, you know, this really hits it on both there it's basically a game where you have trains and the trains go to different stations that contain different resources and you lay tracks down connecting them and the aim is to move a certain amount of resources from one place to another so for example you will send workers from your main terminal to another one that produces corn you'll take the corn back to another one that's kind of like it is basic level but as you go along those things get a little more complicated there'll be things like okay you need a cow but in order to get cows you need to take the corn from one station to another and then the cows come back and then suddenly you have like eight different resources that you need to get in order to make a computer and then you need a certain number of computers in order to make a rocket and then you need to put that rocket somewhere else and it's really good in how it ramps those things up like you start and you think oh this game's very very simple and as it goes along it gets more and more as i said you know it gets more complicated and it also has you know each level the aim is not only to complete it but also to do it earning five stars and the three of the stars are for time trying to get it in a certain time and two of them are like wild card things like do it without destroying any any track do it without crashing any trains do it without pausing the game which is really hard because you often need to just take a moment to sit back and think about what your plan is going to be Mm. and that element of it is very 
addictive and makes you want to kind of keep coming back to it to think okay what could i have done there to shave literally like 10 minutes off this time because it took me so long to do it and it's just a really wonderful way to kind of like zone out for 10 15 minutes at a time to kind of like ham- hammer it to level and i found it to be just incredibly uh relaxing slash stressful thing to kind of like do <laughs> it's kind of a real fun way to to spend the day so that's train valley 2 i think it's like five dollars or something on steam over here it's, it's very very cheap but it's like a wonderful it's a very easy way to kind of lose hours and hours of your time uh, and i i recommend it highly that is all i need a mix of uh, stressful slash relaxing and more thousands of hours to take away from my time brilliant exactly if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm and uh, recommend us to your friends, raters, and reviewers. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye!